Hello and welcome to On The Horizon, a monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. Whether it's waiting patiently for growth in the spring, slapping on the sunscreen in the summer, or an oil change in the winter, we'll be here to see you right. We're in our fifth month for this project, Henry. May, June, July and August, all done and dusted and all polished to perfection by producer Paul. And this month, we're going to spend a couple of hours waffling about the September problems that are on the horizon. So if you listened in last month, thank you. If you didn't, well, you're here now, so stick with it. We'll endeavour to make it as entertaining and as interesting and as worthwhile as possible. So get ready for an exciting ride. But like driving my wife's tiny little Toyota Rigo, it will feel a lot quicker than it actually is. So let's take a look at all the things we can do to make our lives a little easier. Let's look on the horizon where I can see September quickly approaching. Okay, very good. So, Glenn, our starting point each month is to look at the climatic data for each of our locations to try and get a grip on what agronomic scenarios might arise um, so that we can plan ahead and prevent those, uh, I suppose, agronomic bad things from happening. Through the months uh, that we've been doing this, Glenn, it has been clear that even though we're only about um, 200 miles apart as the crow flies... That's one tired um, crow there, isn't it, Henry? Yes, it is, indeed. Uh, We experience very different agronomic conditions throughout the year. Uh, I started off in spring uh, being really grumpy that us up here in Yorkshire... Uh, we're getting the worst of it. And you down in lovely Hampshire were having better conditions. But as time has gone on, I'm now not so sure. I uh, realise now that, you know, we experience very different conditions and we each uh, will suffer from our own extremes. And um, we we have to form our own plans of action, being um, guided Um, by what we see on the horizon. Um, So with that in mind, Glenn, um, what might September have in store for each of us? You are, of course, absolutely spot on, Henry. And when it comes to the differences, which surprised both of us, I think, I had a little look on the map just to get my head around it. So there's actually 193 miles between us. Now, if I go 193 miles south of me, I'm in the Loire Valley in France, which doesn't really surprise me to see a temperature difference down there. No, I mean, I'm not I'm not surprised you're in the Loire Valley, either, mm. uh, Glenn, uh, you know, knowing how much you like a glass of Sauvignon <laughs> Blanc. Indeed, a bit of bread and cheese is very nice. When I'm allowed to camp over there, that have got kiboshed this year. Anyway, um, but one of the things that surprised me was if I go to your location up there in Ilkley in lovely Yorkshire and you go 190 miles north of you, 
I expect it to be somewhere around the North Pole, if I'm completely honest, but you're actually only in Dundee. So this whole exercise has really made me think about the advice that I give. Um, the UK seems to be kind of a very fairly flat and stable climatic environment, but actually when you stop and start looking for those subtle differences, um, they really do add up. Indeed, indeed, I've been amazed by the sort of significance of the of the okay seemingly small differences between us, but agronomically they they seem to have been you know crucial. Anyway, let, let's see what's in store for us in September. What might we expect? Um, firstly, in terms of rainfall, Glenn. Well, rainfall is notoriously difficult to predict. But what I can do is pull out the extremes from the past. So in September 2014, we saw your driest year in the last 13 years, where you only saw eight millimetres of rainfall. Whereas 2010 was your wettest uh, year um, for September in the last 13 years, and you saw 114 millimetres of rain in Ilkley that month in that year. Whereas on the south coast, we've seen similar kind of extremes. Three millimetres in August 2014, oh, sorry, September 2014 was our driest, and 96 in September 2019. So it could be a wide range of rainfall. Yes, indeed, it could be anything. Um, but as we've sort of touched on as we've moved through this exercise i think sort of of more relevance is like the likelihood of it either being wet or dry rather than the sort of the averages or the extremes so so glenn what are those agronomic odds of it being a wet september for the pair of us well we seem to have settled out a 75 millimeter figure don't we henry that is a figure that represents a wet month now the odds of you seeing over 75 millimeters in september are two to one so one in every three years you will get over 75 millimeters of rain and if it plays out that way, you should be okay this year because you saw about 90 millimetres in 2019 and just 34 millimetres last year. So if the one in three thing works out, this is your second year in a row off. Yeah, if only it worked like yeah, that. Yeah, indeed. Um, so for us on the south coast, coast, though, the odds of getting over 75 millimetres in September are 12 to 1. So that's a 1 in 13 year event for us. Well, that's that, again, that's amazing, isn't it? So the, so the averages or the agronomic odds, as we call them, you know, can be really helpful, I think. You know, we've got two completely different, you know, likely outcomes going on. Certainly better than uh, looking at the averages or the extremes if we're if we're trying to plan ahead. Um, are we in the same territory um, as we were for the August figures, Glenn? Yeah, you're averaging around 57 millimetres for September and we're averaging around 42 millimetres for September. So... Although we had uh, those August figures, we are starting to sneak up from them a little bit into this month. Yeah, that feels about right. Moisture levels on the increase through September as we move towards autumn. But how about those evapotranspiration figures, Glenn, or the net upward moisture losses, as we might think? What's going on in September with regard to that? Well, you're averaging around 55 millimetres of evapotranspiration and we're averaging around 76 millimetres of evapotranspiration. So if we had average evapotranspiration and average rainfall, 
um, you're in a break-even month, whereas we are in a moisture deficit still of 32 millimetres. Ah, okay. So it could be still a bit of a finger-in-the-air job for me, knowing uh, sort of in terms of which way it will go. But September is, it looks to be way more likely to be dry for you. But having said that, knowing the weather as we do, uh, September could go either way for both of us. But that is something that we can still prepare for, isn't it? Um, It's more of a transition time, I suppose, for both of us. But we can expect it to get wetter as time moves on, I think. Yeah, that's right. But that starts to change in October, a quick look even further down the line. And I can see both of us averaging around 70 millimetres of rain in October, but the evapotranspiration in October dramatically reduces down to around 30 to 40 millimetres of us. So again, it's based on averages. We can always get freak years, but October looks like it's definitely a month where we're both going to get wetter. Uh, September feels like we have a chance of remaining dry a bit longer. So, you know, (laughs) planning all that out, September is the last month. I suspect we can actually have some drying periods. And and I I mean by drying period, a period where we're actually going to get better. Things are going to improve. But once I get to October, I think we're just hoping it stops raining. Okay, that's that's a good way of looking at it, actually, isn't it? Um, now, how about those temperatures? Uh, are they as variable as the rainfall figures, Glenn? No, not really, but they are still extreme. There are still extremes, of course, um, but there's a much tighter pattern with these. The, the minimum temperatures paint an interesting picture, though, Henry. Um, the coldest you've reached in September in Ilkley was in 2018, where you saw zero degree temperature overnight. And we saw similar, we saw one degree, we reached that as our low in September um, in the same year. Um, So that's our kind of first potential to see a sign of frost, I guess. It's the first month where there's a chance we're going to get a little bit of ground frost or even air frost. From a high temperature point of view, in 2016, you maxed out at 27 degrees and we hit 30 degrees in September Uh, last year 2020 but the averages are a more useful figure with these because both the highs and the lows are just they give us a kind of range of what's going on whereas the average gives us a bit of a clearer picture as to what is likely in this period rather than what is possible so a typical september day for you in ilkley is eight degrees overnight with a daytime temperature of 16 Whereas us on the south coast, our average overnight temperature is 10 degrees overnight with a daytime temperature of 20. Mm, Okay, so you're holding on to those temperatures while mine up here in Yorkshire are now dropping. I suppose that this is the sort of downward side of that spring upward curve that I was moaning about before um, that saw you, you know, warm up so much quicker than us. Again, I presume that you'll be a month behind us when it comes to this decline. Uh, yeah, I guess so. These, this one really shocked me. We were a full four degrees warmer during the day in September, and that's a huge amount of temperature difference. Um, so we're just holding on to much better growing conditions through this September period, and that will have a huge implication on those growing degrees 
three days as well, which are a great way of modeling grass growth based simply on temperature. Mm, good point. Well, well, let's move on to that then. So how are those growth degree days looking? Well, your lowest growth degree day year for September was 148 Henry in 2015, with your highest being 249 in 2016, with an average growth degree day figure for September in Ilkley of 191. Now, remember the highest you've ever reached was um, a July period and you achieve 350 growth degree days in that period. Okay. Mm. So your 2016 September at 249 was actually a really good growing month and not a million miles away from optimum growing conditions. However, 2015 would have been a very disappointing month for you growth-wise. So it seems you can get quite a wide range of variables up there in September. Yeah, absolutely. So, so ultimately, I suppose, we, we sort of, both of us, again, we have these kind of, as we started off, really, those significantly different, potentially significantly different agronomic conditions playing themselves out. And that is really important, isn't it? Certainly, it will have uh, implications in terms of uh, nutrient requirements. Uh, plant growth regulator scheduling will be influenced by that. Fungicide longevity, perhaps. We might talk about that a little bit later on. And of course, uh, the ability of the turf grass system to withstand intensive play and maintenance. I suppose that September is the time when we up north have to consciously start treading carefully depending on how it plays out it does seem that there's no real template for september knowing that it could go either way you know unlike july and august where we were kind of you know a, a lot more uh, maybe a bit more confident about how what was going to happen especially in terms of growth um and that we just have to simply see how it plays out and adjust accordingly you know we have to um, really be mindful of those conditions. And it feels like in September, we've got to be really on our game at this time up north, um, especially with sort of growth either being good or, or quite poor. What about you down south, Glenn? Is it the same or, or is it, a, it feels like it will probably be a bit more consistent for you? Well, from a growth degree day point of view, and what we're doing here is using a GDD model with a base temperature of six to kind of predict grass growth. Um, in September 2015, we saw 214 growing degree days. And in September 2016, we saw 315 growth degree days. Now, again, considering our maximum is about 400, we saw a pretty amazing growth year for growth in 2016. So we're very capable of clinging on some really good growing conditions throughout the month of September. But I guess we can go the other way too, but maybe not to the same extreme as you. So it's the first real month where we've got potential to drop out of some decent growing conditions. Interesting that for you down south, uh, we'll probably be keeping on going with those summer routines, whereas we'll be starting to back off. And remember, you know, that'll be exaggerated further north, won't it? Out of interest, Glenn, how does that work out 
if we think of those sort of growth degree days as a a percentage, sorry, of maximum growth, I'd be interested to hear about that. Well, your coldest year was 44% of your maximum um, and your warmest year was 74% of the maximum Mm. with an average of 57. So it just reinforces that potential to go either way. 44% Mm. is pretty low, 74% is pretty high. Um, Same for us, really. Similar kind of potential, but we do cling on longer our coldest year was 50% of our maximum potential but our warmest year was 74% the same as you with an average of 61 so slightly higher opportunities yeah and you are working from a higher base as well aren't you so um yeah, that is interesting, and, and it's starting to put things into perspective a bit for me in terms of the kind of month that September can be. Okay, so moving on from that, what are the agronomic odds then of it being a decent growing month? So the odds of it being over 200 growth degree days for you is two to one, so one in every three years. Mm-hmm you'll be over that 200 growing degree day figure. Whereas we, or certainly in the last 13 years, we have always been over that 200. In fact, the lowest we've been in that 13-year history that I've got some data from in front of me um, was 214. So a 31% chance of you being over 200 and 100% chance of us being over 200. That is significant, isn't it? Um, So I suppose here in the North, we're going to really have to take this into account that there's a good chance that we'll experience sort of significantly reduced growing conditions and this might mean that we we maybe need to scale back on our ambitions when it comes to surface preparations for instance because pushing too hard uh, when optimal growth is not there um, can lead to loads of issues can't it not least the increased risk of disease activity as a result of you know pushing it too hard when the growth's not there and certainly you know the the that will impact on sort of the ability to recover from damage for instance as well so again there's this clear example of how things are different for us and and again we're a month away from you but in this in this case we're a month closer to autumn and like i said i dread to think what the figures would show further north uh they might need to get their winter woolies on soon that's how it's looking isn't it i've never really looked at it until i dived into these figures these deep but i'm starting to understand now why all my scottish friends seem to wear shorts down here um Okay, to summarise, September, with you in Yorkshire, you're getting overnight temperatures of 8 degrees and daytime temperatures of 16 degrees. On the south coast, we're seeing overnight temperatures of 10 degrees with daytime averages of 20 degrees. It's a break-even month for you on moisture on average and a drying month for us on average. You've got the potential for it to be a really good growing month, but the odds of that are about one in every three. We have a very strong probability it's going to be a decent growing month down here. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think this is the the first month, really, when we're talking about clear differences in, in our weather data. And agronomically, it feels like they're you know, completely different. Now, I know it's not particularly likely that we're going to see any heat stress in September, 
<laughs> Maybe you more likely than me, but we must consider the chances. That'd be that'd be lovely, wouldn't it? I mean, I suppose you, you'll tell me that it, it has happened at some point. But what are the agronomic odds of, you know, of you seeing some late season stresses, and what are the chances of us in Yorkshire? being over, uh, say, 23 degrees in September? Well, they're pretty strong for us. Um, that 23-degree figure we spoke about recently of kind of canopy temperature and causing stress on cool season grasses, although we get kind of shorter days and cooler overnights to relieve the stress a bit, we can still hit those 23-degree temperatures. There's a 12% chance of reaching a, us reaching over 23 degrees down here on the south coast. Um, do you want to know what the chances of you reaching 23 degrees are? Glenn, I, I think I might know the answer to that one. Um, 42 to 1, Henry. A 2% <laughs> chance, mate. Yeah, yeah. That, it's actually higher than I thought. <laughs> so to see a prolonged period of warm weather is probably a more useful figure, though. And, and since you just don't seem to reach those 23 degree figures, I've switched the threshold to 20 just for this. Okay. And what I saw was there is actually a 60% chance that we'll see over 20 degrees. Um, now, for four days in a row in September, for you, that's around a 12% chance. Okay. Well, that's promising, isn't it? A roughly a one year in 10, that will happen. Is that right? It is. Um, but the more interesting thing is the overnight temperature for me, because I believe that is one of the key drivers for disease. And if we're starting to see those overnight minimum temperatures dropping to around 6 for decent periods of the 24-hour period, and we start sitting in that kind of optimum disease development territory. Um, and that may start provoking some microdoke impacts. Now, to get an overnight temperature below 6 degrees in September, for us in the south is a 10% chance, and for you in Yorkshire, an 18% chance. Oh, so that's nearly double you, mm. isn't it? Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's no surprise, I suppose, no. um, you sort of knowing what we've just been talking about. And we do see that, don't we, in the historical data for disease pressure in Yorkshire, that the uh, uh, microdochium patch disease pressure begins to build in September in Yorkshire um, to peak in October, November and December. It's a long peak. But it does feel like September is when it starts building and, and building in earnest, really, in terms of disease risk. Whereas... Whereas for you, tell me if I'm wrong, Glenn, it's a bit later, isn't it? But I suppose the ultimate upshot of this is that we'll cross our fingers for a good September, maybe an Indian summer for a delay for that sort of onslaught of disease conditions. I think we may be best in September, preparing for the worst, but hoping for the best. Totally agree, Glenn. So, Glenn, September can be a great time for golf, can't it? But how is it for the course manager? Do you remember from your days, are you totally frazzled by this time? And what are those levels of expectations that, that we're trying to meet at this time? In terms of being frazzled, Henry, I think I was in a state of 365-day frazzlement. Um, it's a nice word, that, frazzlement. Mm. 
Mm. Um, but September did feel like a time where I could catch my breath a little bit, enjoy presenting the golf course. And as you can see from the South Coast figures, we kind of move into May, June type temperatures. And you'll probably remember that was my favourite period of the year when we were mm. talking in the June episode. Um, you get some yeah. nice growing weather coupled with some shorter days and, and the lack of stress. It was quite a nice time to make the golf course look good. And our growing conditions were there for us down south. It wasn't going crazy, and that tied in quite nicely with our end-of-season tournaments. We always had a really big one that was around the 22nd of September. That date always sticks in my head as it was the tournament we needed to hold on to the long wild grasses until it was done. Once it got through that, it meant I could get out there and start cutting and collecting and removing those wild grasses. But if the weather played ball, it would be dry enough to get the local farmer in to cut and bale. But if it went wet on us, it became a horrible, difficult, messy job. So I guess that was the kind of end of serious golf for us on our downland site. And the removal of the wild grasses kind of marked the end of serious golfing season. And I'd imagine for most people, September is the closing month for serious golf. Of course, it continues on into October and the golfing calendar seems to sneak a week later and a week earlier every year. But I think it's fair to say September is a pretty realistic time to draw a line under it and change the emphasis from presentation to preservation. Okay, so was September uh, more about presentation for you or were you still trying to hold on to those like summer best playing qualities? I think so. We'd recovered from August renovations and we'd have some decent weather for all the golfers that were back from their holidays. And I think we were just giving them one last final hurrah from the, the very best conditions we could for the month of September. So in terms of aspirations, I noticed this year that we've got the BMW Championships uh, over at Wentworth in September. They they really don't get seem to get any favours there at that venue, do they? In terms of the um, their event timing, do they? Um, but I'm sure they'll you know deliver as always. No, they don't. But as long as the weather plays ball in September, it's not a bad month. After all, the Ryder Cup is always there, and that's in pretty good condition. And that's a September event. And best of luck to Kenny, Dan, and the whole team down there. Fingers crossed it stays dry for you. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Good luck, everyone. Okay. Do you start thinking ahead as a course manager at this time or even like begin? Like, is this a time of construction projects, that kind of thing through September? Well, it's certainly a time to think about projects depending on your site. After all, we recognise this is probably our last drying month or a month where the odds are stacked in favour of it being drier. So you can get tractors and trailers around the golf course without making a mess. It's certainly a good time to get drainage wrapped up before we go wet. Particularly the further north you go, that becomes more challenging. Um, the challenge here is convincing clubs to allow you to do it, though. Um, I'd always try and have my construction projects lined up, ready to go for the 1st of October, with a view to having everything finished and turfed before Christmas, making the most of the soil temperatures that we may get through that period to ensure we've got decent routing of any turf, to ensure a smooth transition into the spring, into the playing surface. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay. Right, so but September's a time when autumn starts looming. Um, are there any climatic stresses uh, that might have an impact? Uh, we've summarised the weather, but what about other pressures that start to loom on the horizon at this time? 
Well, the days are certainly shortening, so golfing pressure becomes a bit more tricking. Uh, managing to keep ahead of golfers during this period gets difficult. Daylight is around kind of seven o'clock at the end of September, so we begin to transition back into working on the lights before the really tricky month of October where the clocks go back and it's dark until almost eight o'clock, which doesn't give you very much setup time in natural light at all. Yeah, absolutely. Shorter day lengths are, are really significant, aren't they? Because it means sort of increased leaf moisture. It's reflecting itself in those sort of less optimal growing conditions. Um, the lower sun maybe increases the influence of shade. And these are all huge drivers, aren't they? Especially for the development of microdochium patch disease, which brings us on nicely, Glenn, uh, to the risks in September. So, Henry, it is clear that climatically September is a turning point. Does that reflect itself in the level or the type of risks that will start to emerge during this time, do you think? Oh, I think so, definitely, Glenn. You know, as always, agronomically, I suppose, the risks will um, be dictated by those climatic factors or, you know, they will have a huge influence and, as, you know, we discussed this, didn't we, a little earlier, that we might get, I mean, it's you who's going to get some hot weather, but we might get a dry September, hot and dry conditions. Or it might just be that, um, this is probably more likely for me than you, that, you know, it starts to turn cold and wet. And as we saw from the weather data, you know, we could see any of the above. So it's difficult to forecast what might actually happen. But we do have our experiences to rely on and those agronomic odds to help keep us focused. So in my experience here in the north of England, I would say that the odds are that by the end of the month, we're going to fall firmly into autumn with growth tailing off and juice forming to make leaf wetness an issue. The turf will become tired from the management pressure, really, that's been heaped upon it for the last four to five months. It's the end of a long season, isn't it? And this makes the risk of microdochium patch disease developing highly likely, especially if there's renovation work happening at this time which is common isn't it not everyone can get the work done in august and you know this is our big concern i suppose glenn isn't it you know because as we discussed last month glenn uh, microdochium patch is both a beast and a terror and it can cause scarring that we might not be able to fully recover from until next year. Um, as we discussed in the August episode, September is a crucial time when we continue on with our integrated microdochium patch disease control strategy by trying to slow down its development with good cultural management, plant health, reduced leaf wetness, etc. And probably by beginning our preventative fungicide programs um, to anticipate with prevention being better than cure, those upcoming pulses of increased disease pressure that those weather patterns are going to undoubtedly bring. But maybe that's my northern perspective. Is it, is it generally the same for you, Glenn? Is September a time when autumn begins and 
microdokian patch disease starts rearing its ugly head in earnest. Definitely a time to be thinking about it. And looking at the figures, we're a few weeks behind you, but the weather can easily swing one way or the other, can't it? So it's certainly possible in some Septembers, and we should definitely be thinking about it and planning for it. In August, we got on our game face with regards to microdokian patch, mm. but September... I think we need to move things forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think with it being such a, a sort of a likely and potentially serious outcome, you know, we do really need to um, start early with our thoughts and our programs when it comes to sort of managing microdokian patch disease. So obviously, you look, look we're going to need to maintain turf health, aren't we, with, with uh, appropriate nutrition continuing on from August and we need to try to manage that leaf wetness as best we can because it's such an influencing factor but I think the big change in September is that we will need to start our fungicide programs in earnest to keep disease on the back foot by zeroing it out at times and I think this is something that we certainly will need to discuss in more detail a little later on what do you think absolutely Henry microdokian patch is on the horizon it's our top priority in September and we will need to make sure that we set off on the right foot going into autumn uh, the battle cannot be won in September but it can certainly be lost Ah, wise words indeed. There is another thing that we could mention, Glenn, if we're chatting generally. And this is something that does come up quite often, so it might be a chance to just mention it. Um, how does the use of Primo Max, the plant growth regulator Primo Max, fit into the equation at this time? You know, we've already said that growth might be tailing off, but it might we, we might. Main, be maintaining strong levels also so how long can we use it for in general terms and can it have benefits this always gets asked Glenn in terms of prolonging fungicide activity by regulating growth yeah that's one of my uh, top three questions I get asked I think Henry right up there mm alongside of where do I get the nozzle housings for XC nozzles. Um, <laughs> right, let's have a little think about this. Growth regulators, they're useful in the autumn months. Um, all the time we've got good levels of light. I think that's my main rule. I do know some people who continue to use them all the way through the winter, but it's not something I would recommend. I know they'll generally disagree with that as those that commit will see good results assuming they're on the right site. But generally, what I see when I go and visit them is their sites where they have no big agronomic challenges growing grasses. I'm talking they're not seeing heavy shade. They're not sitting super wet. They've generally got pretty good construction. And when we're offering advice, Henry, we need to take all of those variables into account because those things are normal for most people having those kind of challenges. So for me, mm. it's not best practice. I really think they can play a role on longer areas of turf, such as tees or fairways. And if I was to offer one piece of advice, it would be back off the program as soon as you start losing light levels. We want to prime that plant to make the most of the autumn light by condensing the plant down and packing in those chloroplasts, and then back away from them in the shaded areas first. As far as fungicide longevity goes, though, I guess the theory is that... The less growth you get, 
the more of that fungicide will stay in the plant and it will stay in there longer, which is a nice theory, but there are so many more drivers to fungicide de deterioration than simply plant growth. It's related to UV light, it's related to microbial activity, it's related to soil temperatures, plant growth. So I'd be really surprised if we did actually manage to get any additional longevity by using Primo. Now that's not to say the guys that use it on the right sites aren't seeing benefits, it's just not something that I would wholesale recommend. So moving on, it feels like we've been talking about anthracnose disease all year. Has the risk gone away yet? Uh, no, Glenn, uh, absolutely not. And I don't know, it might even be reaching its peak depending on conditions. You know, if September's wet and we keep pushing those surfaces hard, we say it every time, every time, don't we, Glenn? But um, if your greens are highly stressed in terms of ongoing intensive management coupled with insufficient nutrition, for example, or too much or even too little water, if you have one of those uh, dry Septembers, Glenn, then you, you need to accept that the development of anthracnose and we might be talking probably basal rot at this time rather than foliar blight. You know, there's a real risk. And so adjustments might be needed, you know, in all those areas and in good time. You know, autumn nutrition is essential, maybe easing up of those cutting heights if the risk is deemed to be high. Those, you know, they'll both be a great help. But this is a time, we, we, we also go back to this, don't we? When unre unrealistic player expectations or uh, the, the scheduling of late competitions or events might have significant agronomic consequences. You know, 95% of golf greens in the UK are poa annua dominated and they just simply, they just can't afford um, to have anthracnose running riot at this time. So, yeah, I think it is on the radar, but I do, it's way, it's certainly way less than it used to be. I think, you know, most people do have a handle on their nutrition and when to back off. So, but that's not to say that um, it couldn't happen. So you just do need to keep it in mind. Anyway, look, the fungicides that we've got, Glenn, they're effective against anthracnose, aren't, aren't they? You know, we should always try and be preventative and I suppose it's good news that in terms of the Syngenta fungicide, fungicide portfolio um, that we use at this time to combat microdochium patch disease they're all they're all really good against anthracnose as well aren't they indeed we are in that autumn season now where we're looking for some kind of systemic activity but there's also benefits to reducing spore populations through this period as well. So we've put together the FR321 one-box solution pack and um, we put that together and it fits in nicely through this period of the year. If we do have anthracnose rumbling on during September, then we need to think carefully about our programme. There's a lot of the things we'll try to do to reduce the onset of anthracnose may be counterintuitive to what we're trying to do to manage that microdochian patch through this September, early October period. So if we do get caught in that trap, we should really try and build a more robust fungicide program to get us through this tricky period, enabling ourselves to recover with confidence before we enter into the more challenging months of October and November. Of course, Instratural Elite is a great product, but we only have two applications of that available on the label. And if we're in a high pressure disease situation, we need to box a little clever and integrate that into our strategies later in the autumn. 
The combination of that sandwich between FR321 applications through the milder part of autumn will definitely put us on the right road though. Okay, Henry, it looks like September is a risky month for Microdokian patch. Is there anything else on the horizon we need to think about? Yeah, well, as always, there's 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 plenty coming at us, isn't there? September, if we think about September, that is the time when we might be uh, starting to see greater numbers of crane flies on the wings. And we should be monitoring their numbers and their location uh, to guide the need for uh, corrective action a little later on. And I think we're all relieved and thankful to have just received the news at the time of recording that we've been granted another emergency approval for the use of the insecticide Acelaprim for the control of leather jacket grubs uh, in the early stages of their development to prevent infestations developing um, in those strategically important areas around the golf course. Yeah, greens, teas, fairways. Uh, now, Glenn, the timing of application does seem to be all important with the use of a celeprin. And we've all learned a lot since this time last year. And I know that you've been doing a lot of research and a lot of trials on the product, especially with regard to timings. Uh, can you give us a brief summary on what we should be doing in September when it comes to leather jacket control? And uh, now that we know that we will have a seller print available to us, this is definitely something that we'll need to discuss in more detail a little later on. Yes, indeed. We did do a lot of user trials last autumn investigating mm. the impact of different timings on the effectiveness of Acelaprin applications. And we got some really nice results as well that we'll go through in the later section on leather jackets and crane flies because there's a whole number of things we should be looking to put in place through this September period. And we'll cover that in part two. Um, but outside of leather jackets and crane flies, chafers. Um, now, that's a different story in September, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. Um, well, so, well, for one reason, uh, Glenn, the emergency approval for the use of a celebrant against uh, chafer grubs, which was a, a separate emergency approval from the leather jacket one, that expires or expired, depending on when you're listening to this, at the end of August. And so it can't be used against chafer grubs uh, in September. And so all stocks purchased for use against chafer grubs would need to have been applied by this time. So if you're listening before the end of August, great. And, you know, make sure you sort of get it on in time. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we haven't got anything available to us when it comes to chafer grub control, because it might still be a time when the use of insect parasitic nematodes, um, in our case, uh, Nemesis G, containing uh, deep breath everyone now containing the um insect parasitic nemesode, nematode uh, heterorhabditis bacteriophora i thank you um that might still be uh, appropriate for control of developing uh, garden chafer grubs in particular um, you just have to need it you know with the use of the insect parasitic nematodes you do need to keep an eye on environmental conditions such as soil moisture soil temperatures and the application procedure is also really important uh, but they can be really effective and actually they might work well in tandem with 
Acelaprin, maybe for chafers it would have been an earlier acelaprin ap- application. Uh, it just depends on the severity of the problem, really, whether you want to do a, sort of take a belt and braces approach by using them both. Yeah, integrating these technologies isn't straightforward, but it is something we need to look at for ITM strategies against chafer grubs and leather jacket infestations. Now, the emphasis of this chat, Henry, has been on September being the start of autumn and everything turning a bit cooler and a bit wetter. But that's not always the case, is it? Well, I suppose it would be best for you to tell me, really. We're getting back to those agronomic odds again, Glenn. Can you tell me what the agronomic odds uh, for September are of it being dry or hot? I think we all want to know you know, what the chances of an Indian summer are. Well, we looked at those odds earlier, didn't we? And we can still reach some pretty high temperatures. If I remember rightly, you'd hit 27 once in September and we've hit 30 degrees in September. And we're very capable of getting less rainfall than we are losing in evapotranspiration too. So for us in the south, it's more likely to see it, but it's very possible for you up north too. Um, There is a wide range of possibilities that September can throw at us. And I think we're all hoping for that Indian summer. We live in hope, don't we? Uh, One thing we haven't mentioned in the last couple of episodes is Primo Max 2 longevity and the gaps between applications at this time of year, because you've got that sort of uh, Glenn's idiot-proof way of um, thinking about um, the the frequency of treatments, haven't you? Yeah, I like to keep it quite simple and look to kind of 30 days through the cool periods of the year, maybe two weeks during the warm periods of the year and somewhere in between when it's kind of in between. But some people want to see a bit more detail than that. And um, mm. the last couple of months, we've sat in that decent growing condition, those decent growing periods. So the intervals have sat right around 14 to 16. Um, Mm -hmm. But we begin to change in September, don't we? So an average September... Yeah, and we know they don't exist. No, but... And if we did have an average September, I can't work it on anything other than that. We start the month still at 14-day intervals down south, and you're starting the month at 16-day intervals still. So we really want to hang on to... Um, those tighter intervals right into the beginning of September. But they do start stretching out because by the end of the month, you've stretched out to 21-day intervals, but we've still only stretched out to 17-day intervals. Um, But of course, as we identified earlier, September can present some big variables. So if you want to get really precise, go on to that GDD calculator on the GD website, uh, on the Greencast website, which is a really important part of getting the best out of Primo. If not, just kind of think about that idiot's guide. What we are not at yet is 30-day intervals. As much as we'd like to get that longevity, if we're still in decent growing conditions, we're not going to be out at one month, even in September, even for you by the end of it. All right, so we need to keep an eye on the forecast, and we certainly do need to, as you say, be on our game. So, yeah, let's just see what it brings. Before we sign off on this first half of the podcast, I think we should look back at how we did last month and have a good look to see if the data and information we were talking about was relevant, useful, and even accurate. Well, indeed, yes, to determine whether this is a completely 
pointless exercise or not. Um, it's really it's really important for everyone really to uh, to make sure we look back and evaluate our thinking. Um, so, Glenn, um, and, and now I am crossing my fingers. Uh, how well did we do with our advice? I do feel like I'm interrogating myself during this section of the podcast. It's a little disconcerting. But ultimately, it's something I suggest everybody does on a regular basis with their own mm. programs. Go back and honestly critique it. It does help. Well, you know, this is being recorded at the start of, um, uh, well, second week in August. Uh, so we've got, we, we do have July to look back on so let's start with the weather um what did july actually throw at us glenn and and how close was it to those averages you know we're not really in the business of making predictions glenn are we we're just trying to i don't know plan ahead by looking at the looking at the climatic data maybe the averages or the extremes or the sort of odds those agronomic odds of um different eventualities happening. So, so so, what did it actually throw at us? Yeah, that's right. And do you remember what an average July looks like, Henry? Well, Glenn, uh, I do because you've emailed it to me <laughs> to, so, so that I can, uh, I can sound convincing at this stage. Uh, so look, for us in Ilkley in July, our average overnight temperatures uh, should have been according to the averages, 10 degrees, with the uh, average daytime temperatures hopefully being around 19 degrees. And the average rainfall uh, is for July is 66 millimetres for us up in Ilkley. But down for you in Winchester, the overnight temperatures should have been higher, around about 11 degrees, and with the daytime temperatures being higher again, uh, 22 degrees, three degrees warmer uh, but the rainfall should have been slightly lower around about 43 millimeters um, and I should um, for full disclosure here Glenn I should say that I actually spent a week down in Winchester at the end of July um, as on my holiday I didn't tell you I was there because uh, you can have too much of a good thing but uh, I had direct experience of both Ilkley and Winchester so how did we compare? You know, in my mind, July was a mixed bag up here with cool conditions for the majority of the month. Uh, but it was broken, surprisingly, by like a heat wave for a week in the middle of the month. Yeah. How did it pan out compared to what we were, were saying? Um, well, I did know you were in the area, Henry, and I made a point of being away so we didn't actually see each other face to face. Well, let's start with rainfall. Both of us saw 69 millimetres of rainfall. Well, actually, you had 68 and a half and we saw 69. Okay. So amazingly close uh, precipitation yeah, okay. figures there. Um, which was about bang on average for your rainfall, for your location, whereas we were about 50% up on our average oh, rainfall. Okay. You remember we were averaging around 45. Oh. So although we both got the same amount of rainfall, it was wet for us and average for you. So I'm still trying to get my head around that. Um, yeah, I did feel like it was a pretty dry month. I mean, I'm terrible at remembering back on the weather because I, I sort of do 
do that. We, we, we talked about it, didn't we, sort of fairly recently. And I really struggle to remember just four or five weeks back. But I did feel that July was a pretty dry month. Mm. And I perceived July as being a pretty wet month, even though we both had yeah. the same amount of rain. Yeah, there you go. That's Well, it's a nonsense. It, well, it's the weather in it. We're British. We love it. Yes. Um, yes. But most of your rainfall, Henry, fell in that last week. Oh, yeah. When I was in Winchester. With nearly 50 millimetres of that of that 69 in in the last week so maybe you just avoided the wet period I did. maybe that's a, ta- yes. a technique you should employ in the future look at the forecast and drive away yeah I, I think I brought the rain down with me didn't I well I think we had it for most of the month um, we started the month wet and then we went into a hot dry spell and then it was very wet to the end so maybe you did end our little heat wave that we had yeah well the, the, yeah it, when i went down to winchester that week it was stiflingly hot on the we came down on the friday and it was it was kind of unbearable to, for my sort of northern bones but immediately it turned into sort of a northern summer with for you much needed rainfall actually wasn't it it was kind of like I, I think it was it was oh yeah it's well not, it wasn't that it was the drought going on but anyway it started raining as soon as I got there <laughs> yeah during the middle of the month we did reach some very high temperatures for consecutive days which was something we discussed in that podcast you asked me what the odds of getting a prolonged period of over 24 degrees was. Yes, I do remember that. And I remember that the chances were pretty slim of something like that happening. That's right. In the data set I had going back to 2008, you had never achieved five days in succession in Ilkley of going over 24 degrees. Whereas we yeah, In July, that that's is. That's it, in it? July. Yeah. But we'd seen it uh, four times since 2008. So four times in July, we'd gone over um, 24 degrees mm. for five days in the trot. Well, I'm pleased to tell you, Henry, this was the year. This is the big one, mate. 2021 is the year you achieved not just five days in a row in Ilkley in July, um, but you actually smashed that record and went up to eight days in succession over 24 degrees. Wow. I feel proud and... um... And yeah, I feel like everything's come together on that point. So do you think we tempted fate there by talking about it? Do you think we had a positive influence on the the, the weather patterns by highlighting that? Anyway, no. But it was clearly a really unusual weather event, wasn't it? Um, And depressingly, we seem to be breaking climatic records, um, not only in this country, but around the globe at the moment. Um, But, you know, it was great to feel some heat for a short while. Yeah, and it was it was even more prolonged for us on the south coast where we saw those temperatures last for 10 days in succession, although not quite so unusual. OK, so that uh, that prolonged period of high temperatures, you know, I felt it uh, must have had an impact on the average temperatures for the month. Yeah, it did. And looking back at it like this, it starts to give you an indication of how these average figures piece together. Now, the average isn't necessarily the best figure to be looking at when understanding the impact of temperatures on turf grasses. Most of the month, we had some pretty average to low temperatures. You had a few days in July where you only just reached 16 degrees as a maximum temperature. But because we had that prolonged spell of intense heat in the middle, your average temperature was a full two degrees warmer 
than normal through the July period. And we came in right on average for July for high temperatures. Now, when you consider that we had that prolonged period in the middle of the month, it shows how the rest of the month would have felt much cooler than normal. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think Was it last month we were talking about overnight temperatures? Um, it certainly, that is certainly... Someone trying to get to sleep in the, during that sort of hot period, you know, became sort of slightly uncomfortable. How did the overnight temperatures look during that period? Well, they were up, Henry. Those overnight temperatures were up. Uh, you were a full degree and a half warmer overnight than normal mm. on average. And we were just one degree warmer than normal overnight. So when you couple all those figures together, which are all useful on their own merits... Uh, and bearing in mind we're comparing this to recent data, um, this isn't being compared to like a 1980 data set when you look at climate change. This is being compared to the last 10 years. You can see how climatically things seem to be increasing. I wouldn't have put this July down as a particularly outstanding month for temperature, yet in the averages it will be shown as significantly warmer than average due to those overnight temperatures. You know, there comes a time, especially when you're talking about climatic records and that, that it, you know, I start feeling that sort of panic about, uh, about what the future is going to bring. So look, how did you come through that high temperature period from a, from a turf stress point of view to get it back on track? Okay, actually, I think most of the people in the South have pretty good strategies for dealing with the warm weather. And, and this is why it's so important to look at the whole climatic picture rather than just one element of it because we didn't go into that period with any turf stress. As I mentioned earlier, we also came out of it very quickly as well with significant rainfall and lower temperatures to recover any damage that may have been done in that period. What about you up north, Henry, though? I mean, it was a bit more unusual for you to get a prolonged period like that. Did you hear of any challenges? And you were much drier than we were at the beginning of the month. And actually, it was a pretty unusual weather event for you, whereas for us, it was a bit more normal. Yeah, yeah, we were all fainting in the street. Um, we'd never seen anything like it. Um, no. Seriously. Yeah, we did see some challenges, actually, as a, as a result of the hot and dry conditions. But like you, it was it was broken sort of quite quickly. But most notably, I actually got the uh, opportunity to apply some treatments like fertilizers and some other liquid treatments in those hot and stressed conditions deliberately to review their impact on the turf. And I'm happy to say that I did manage to scorch the turf quite successfully. Well done. But um, it wasn't too it wasn't too too bad. Uh, the wet weather at the end of the month did sort of bring recovery. It wasn't too much, but it just shows you, doesn't it? You know, you have to be careful. You can't just carry on regardless. So, but now everything's back to normal now. But uh, I just wanted to find out. You know, it's obviously it's important with with all your products and ranges to sort of know just how safe they are for turf. So I I took the opportunity for these kind of really unusual conditions to add some extra stress to the turf. But you know, as we sit here now in the second week in August that that period of stress is a distant memory and actually up here everything's growing like stink now um, but interestingly around my trial sites there's a lot of red thread disease about you know that period of stress maybe sort of bringing that on and then the rainfall afterwards you know producing ideal 
conditions for the development of this disease? Yeah, I saw quite a bit of red thread floating around here too. And I just put it down to the additional rainfall that we had, um, hmm. yeah. even though it was the same as yours. Hmm. Interesting. Um, we did speak about some of the niche diseases in our last podcast as well. Take all, white ear patch, yellow tuft. And with all the rainfall we had at the end of the month, which was concentrated into that last week and it continued into the beginning of August, I would fully expect to see some of those challenges rearing their heads on the golf course now in early August. In fact, I've had a few reports of diseases in the last couple of days that I really haven't recognised and I'm waiting for some samples back. Um, so we're definitely in that niche or boutique disease period of the year. So if you've got anything that looks a bit funky, a little bit different, something you don't recognise, it is worth going back to last month's podcast and having a listen to that section. Yeah, yeah. And send us some photos or, or get the samples identified. Um, but, the, you know, the drivers for that are, are very much there at the moment, aren't they? High temperatures, um, which seem to be getting sort of more and more with um, with. Uh, prolonged periods of humidity or more recently sort of rainfall and leaf moisture those are the perfect conditions for some of those fun fungal pathogens uh yeah we spoke a bit about anthracnose as well didn't we and that's another fungal pathogen that we don't really want to see but we do mm. uh, but today i've had very little reports of this troublesome disease affecting people but i'm sure there's some about yeah yeah maybe we just sort of understand them a little bit better and, and, and adjusting our programs accordingly let's hope so for everyone's sake okay look we can't sort of leave July behind without congratulating Paul and the rest of the team and all those involved at Royal St George's um, for a very entertaining Open Championship this year with uh, both the course setup and the playing conditions uh, really putting those players to the test and ultimately to my eyes, I suppose, the best iron or approach play seeming uh, to win out in the end, which was great, wasn't it? I mean, that's a real reflection of the sort of, I don't know, just the, the sort of links conditions sort of bringing out the best in players. Yeah, and it fell right in that temperature sweet spot as well, didn't it? Right in the middle of the month where we had that decent prolonged period of good temperatures. Could we have hoped for any better? Well, you know, we've got we maybe a little bit more stress uh, for the for the sort of uh, for the connoisseurs of Lynx golf. But look, the challenge is is you know just to take whatever the weather throws at you and delivering the goods when it matters, and they certainly did that. Yeah, indeed. And as we're increasingly seeing, if you're relying on the weather to deliver perfect conditions, you're usually going to be pretty disappointed. Great job, Paul. Well done. Right, I am going to grab a cuppa. What are you on today, Henry? A loose leaf Earl Grey? No, no, Glenn. I'm, I'm, I'm going for a straightforward cup of Yorkshire tea today. How about you? I'll go and have a look, see what's in the cupboard. Right, kettle on. I'll see you in a minute. Welcome back. I've got my cup of tea. Are you ready to undertake the second half of this mammoth podcast, Henry? Yes, I am. I've got my cup of Yorkshire tea here and a ginger nut. Good news. 
So Henry, we are focusing on Microdokian patch once again, and I'm sure we will be until Christmas. You gave us a pretty detailed review last month uh, that people can find in the August part two section, but the situation changes as we move through and into towards autumn. September will see the start of autumn for you, and we are starting to sneak into that territory down in the south. Yes. Conditions move more and more in favour of microdokian patch development, and that is going to phase through over the next few weeks. So how mm. has that situation moved on in the last month, and what should we be thinking about this month so yes uh in august's podcast we went into quite a lot of detail sorry about that everyone uh regarding microdokian patch disease uh, its biology and its management and i classified it as being both a beast and a terror but also a perfect enemy and for good reason. It is our top priority, isn't it? For the whole of the autumn and the remainder of the winter. Okay, so just as a recap, uh, microdokium patch disease is caused by the fungal pathogen Microdokium nivale. Uh, it is widespread through the UK, of, uh, UK and Ireland, and because it can exist on dead organic matter and thatch, it is always hanging around. It can develop at any time, depending on the conditions and the early stage of its development or uh, and plant infection occur without it showing any signs of activity. Uh, it develops very quickly and it can be extremely damaging. And we know that if it develops during the autumn and winter, the damage can be extremely severe and the scarring can last for months on end until growth resumes in the spring. All fairly terrible news but we didn't just want to pack up our bags and go home with this knowledge because we know from our experiences that we can cope with uh, microdokium patch disease if we're on our game uh, we can predict its occurrence we can closely monitor for its development uh, we can slow down that development with the use of good sort of cultural practice and nutrition etc and we can kill it with the use of fungicides we can do all of these things if we take an itm or integrated turf management approach right so in august our agronomic game plan was really focused on looking at uh, moisture management methods uh, to reduce that period of leaf wetness, you know, that most important driver for the development of disease. And we were also focusing on nutrition uh, to maintain plant health, but without overdoing it. We suggested the use of specific fertilizer technologies um, that have been developed uh, and designed um, for use at this time. And let's not sort of underestimate that you know they do work well in their own right in field trials and we hoped that a preventative fungicide application wouldn't be needed in august but if extensive renovations were being carried out uh, during those cool and wet conditions um, or other circumstances like the use of alkaline irrigation water then a preventative fungicide application might be prudent right so that was august now we need to move on and start thinking about september being on the horizon and as we've discussed this is a time when temperature 
temperatures start to fall, especially for me up north. A light, light frost might occur, especially for me, and growth begins to tail off. Um, also, extremely importantly, we might experience wetter conditions, all of which increase the risks or they reduce the agronomic odds of a microdochian patch disease outbreak occurring. And our experiences back this up, don't they? Uh, last time we mentioned the Greencast website as a resource that um, course managers could access to help get a clearer view of the um, potential emergence of microdochian patch disease. So this month we decided to take a look at some of that retrospective information to help us with our future planning. So the graphs that we looked at, those historic disease graphs for microdochian patch disease risk for the last three years, were from, as usual, Winchester and Ilkley. But also, we looked further north to Dundee and also further west to Dublin to see if there were any major differences or uh, if there if the sort of um, recent trends could tell us anything in terms of gearing up our ITM management strategy. So in terms of the disease risk, looking back at the last three years, with their slightly different weather conditions, we remember, the trend for Ilkley in Yorkshire, where I am, is an increase in the microdochian patch disease risk through August to generally reach a moderate level by the end of September. Uh, the pattern will then continue to build uh, to reach a peak of disease pressure through August, November and December. That is a long peak. Yes. Um, what about us down in Winchester though, Henry? Well, Glenn, it's similar, but peaks a little later as we were intimating earlier on the peak rather than for me the, the the peak of disease pressure would begin at the end of september start of october your peak seems to be on recent data um mid to late october uh, those three to four weeks difference again glenn uh playing themselves out agronomically but if we look further north uh the microdochium patch disease risk in dundee that seems to be growling away throughout September with regular and sustained periods of moderate risks during this month, but again peaking in October, November and December. Um, and if we would factor in individual course conditions such as September renovations, intensive management or high levels of shelter and shade, then I think the risk of a, an attack up up there in Dundee might become high during September and a preventative fungicide would certainly be needed probably earlier uh, than it would have been for me or you Glenn and if we look just that little bit further west uh, to finish things off it looks to be similar to Dundee in Dublin with the pressure building a like a strong head of steam in September but but peaking again at the start of October. But I think if we went further west to the west coast and it's kind of maritime, maritime damp Atlantic climate, um, 
the sort of peak might even be earlier still. Yeah, you can, listening to that, I can just kind of see it mapping itself around the country. It really makes the point that generalised fungicide application and ITM advice is the wrong thing to do. It's very location and year specific, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's certainly clear in September that climatically the conditions are, are driving a steady increase in the risk for microdochian patch disease. You know, the cooler temperatures, the damper conditions, maybe the sort of lower light levels leading to sort of uh, increased levels of shade, possibly, you know, leaf moisture, all things like that. And that'll be further heightened depending on your sort of location. And if, you know, as we mentioned, additional pressure is being exerted, we go back to that maintenance intensity, don't we? And, um, yeah, and the balance of nutrition, you know, too much fertilizer undoubtedly is a bad thing if we're looking to reduce the risk of microdochian patch disease, but too little is just as bad. And then there's those kind of renovations as well. So, yeah, it's um, it, the screw is turning in September, I would say. And depending on your location, some of us feel more than others. I guess that's completely true. But what we've already identified is that September can go either way with mm. the climatic data. And and we've looked at that and take this summer, for example, generally we're a lot drier than you, but this June we were really wet compared to you. And, and usually we'll see no microdochian patch down here at all. But this year that kind of rumbled on because of uh, how wet things were to start with. Yeah, we don't want to get into this kind of fixed mindset, do we, of prejudging what conditions are going to happen based on what our perceptions might be uh, for a typical September. You know, there is no specific playbook for what September's going to be or that we could use during September. Um, we just need to be alive to the... Uh, emerging situation and always ready to react and and that's what on the horizon is all about thinking forward and reacting to the changing conditions so assuming we get those climatic conditions you mentioned earlier how do we take charge of the situation well um, in terms of proactively reducing the risk uh, or as we would call it, forming an agronomic game plan, Glenn, we would focus on doing what we can to reduce the management pressures, thinking about our heights of cut, intensity of verti-cutting, top dressing levels, that kind of thing, and only doing what is necessary, I suppose, or what is appropriate for the conditions. You know, you might have a plan in place, you know, for renovation, but if the weather really turns against you, it might be more prudent to, um, to back off. So you just got to read the situation. In terms of nutrition, I think we're still good for slow-release nitrogen, as we sort of mentioned in August, because the soil temperatures should be holding up. But again, you know, we might be into the territory of early frost. So, you, so that sort of comes under review. We certainly might move over to more conventional sources of nutrient or nitrogen release later on in the month. Uh, sulfate of ammonia based feeds or granular fertilizers as the month moves on if we if we still need to provide nutrient inputs um, the nutrient requirements will be lower at this time um, but they shouldn't be ignored uh, if growth is still available we might need to support it especially if we've got sort of high levels of play and the intensity of the maintenance is maintenance might not be as very high but it's still there towards the end of the month just as a 
general rule of a general sort of guideline although we hate saying this kind of thing maybe one to two kilograms of nitrogen per week uh, when we also might be thinking about deploying sulfate of iron in liquid or granular form for its uh, what we like to call turf hardening effect lots of other things in terms of managing leaf leaf wetness dews will probably be forming at this time uh, and its quick removal is essential it might still possibly be a little bit too early to use dew dispersants with growth still proceeding or scale back your um, level of expectation on the longevity of dew dispersants if growth is uh, still proceeding but they might be more relevant further north for instance you know Dundee or indeed Ilkley might towards the end of September might really be in that territory because you know managing leaf leaf moisture is an absolute priority um, for, for microdochium patch disease management. Yeah, so switching, blowing, mowing, rolling, they all remain really important through this month, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Absolutely vital. In terms of soil surfactants, I think the general shift at this time is over from water conservation agents uh, over to penetrants. That tends to be the norm at this time in the UK and Ireland. Um we know that these things, that all the things that we sort of mentioned, you know, nutrition, moisture management, the use of sulfate of iron are, are extremely effective at maintaining plant health and I suppose creating a less conducive environment for the development of the disease. And they should all be employed to, to work in conjunction with us. But Glenn, you know, we will need to talk about fungicides when it comes to microdochian patch control because we're going to go into our preventative program most likely in September but there are other specialist technologies that might help us it might be worth mentioning a couple of those how does high cure or rider fit into this from your perspective indeed so some of this pressure is influenced by turf stress isn't it and we can look towards additional technologies such as high cure which is an amino acid that when integrated amongst some fungicide programs has shown in our trial to put the turf grass in a stronger position giving the fungicides a better chance of helping out the plant. Rider is my go-to though. It's great during this period of the year, particularly when tank mixed with fungicides. The UV benefits and the stress reduction properties of that product combined with fungicides seems to work really nicely. And, and course managers love the colour uplift as well, which allows them to leave that iron in the spray store until we really need it later. Trust me, using Rider at the same time as a fungicide is something that once people have done, they rarely back away from in the future. Mm, couldn't agree more. Yeah, and well, you know, you know what a big fan of using Rider I am at any time of the year, and you know for all the various benefits that it brings. But yeah, particularly at this time, it would also be in my plan of action. Okay, so some good advice there. Um, but anyway, I think. That although there are clearly some regional differences going on in terms of the pressure building, the thing common to all of us probably is that September is the time um, when we start leaning towards our preventative fungicide strategy. So, Glenn, over to you, I, I think. What fungicide technology should we be considering in September against uh, to help us you know, prevent the development of microdochian patch disease? Uh, well, at this time of year, we have some pretty decent growth conditions going on. We've already identified that. 
Um, so there's strong potential for growth at this time of year. So we have to look towards something that is going to give some longevity by moving into that new growth. So we're really talking about systemic products during this period to get the most out of any application at this period of the year. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but is it is it that simple? Um, you know, we do know that we've got, you know, contact products available. Um, and we know, for instance, that Medallion helps reduce the spore population. Does that have its place? Yeah, it's a good point, Henry. And some people's strategy is definitely to use Medallion to start their programs during this September period. Now, Medallion is a contact fungicide that will deal with any spores that are on the leaf, but it will not deal with any pathogens that are working inside the plant. So to get the best from it, it needs to be applied prior to the pathogens entering that plant. It is truly preventative. But it is really good at mopping up the spores on the outside of the plant. So if you start the fuzz season with a lower spore count, which is good news, so you can adopt it, but you've got to make sure things are clean when you use it. Okay. Now, I think the... Um... I don't know whether it's a, the kind of concern for many course managers. It certainly was a couple of years ago. But, you know, in recent times, we have lost some what we might call blockbuster technologies in the last five years um, in, from a number of different suppliers. Does that mean we're on the back foot now when it comes to um, microdochium control during the autumn? Well, we've certainly lost some really useful technology through this period of the year. Now, Banamax and Instrata were two very useful products that slotted into this period that are no longer with us. Uh, we do have some new technology in the pipeline that we're working hard to achieve registrations on for golf, and they'll be really useful uh, when we do get them registered. But knowing there's a gap during this period, and it is such a critical time as we've identified, we've put that one box solution together called FR321. It's, it's a great mix, 60% of full rate heritage and 66% of full rate medallion, all coupled up with rider at one liter in a nice, strong tank mix, a really important time. And that systemic activity of heritage and the spore population control of medallion works great and we've done some nice trial work all the way through till November with some really good results. Now after all this period of September, October, November we've identified as being the critical period to get control of the, the problem here and, and the challenge this is an intermittent growth period so I can understand why people worry a bit because that uh, kind of Banamax and Strata they were the go-to products through this period and we're having to relearn how we use them we've already seen this weather in September can still be pretty strong as well so We've done some user trials as well with these products um, with a big group of golf courses and we kind of looked at different ways of starting the program through this year. We looked at FR321 as a combination, we looked at Heritage by itself and we looked at Medallion as a contact. They were the kind of three options we started the program with. And FR321, that kind of strong tank mix, definitely came out the best way to start a program. And we've said it so many times already, this September period is critical to starting the race in a really strong position. 
Yeah, I got some really good feedback on that tank mix last autumn, and um, it does seem a really strong addition to a sort of fungicide toolbox. And it does feel like we're very much able to set off this crucial time period on the front foot. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's lots to think about. Um, we always get asked, Glenn, you know, how do we know when to start the preventative fungicide programme? Well, we know getting ahead of the game is critical here and all our trials show getting in earlier will result in better control. Every day the weather sits in that kind of favourable zone for the pathogen, it will exponentially increase and increase the challenge. Yeah, yeah. You talked about a lot about exponential growth when um, for our sort of seminar road trips, which we, which we kind of like really miss, don't we now, um, after such a long period of being locked in our cupboards? Yeah, I think it, I think it's now kind of exponential growth is a concept that everybody completely understands. Now we've had those COVID graphs put in front of us on almost a daily basis. Everyone seems to now get this concept of exponential growth. And that's what really beats us with this disease. Those early phases where the pathogen is redu- reproducing over and over again, increasing that population. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the terminology actually associated with the pandemic has kind of been helpful in in, in this regard, doesn't it? Because um, I think we all sort of you know, understand the whole idea of an R rate, and uh, and I think an integrated strategy um, for turf is is very much kind of you know picking out all those things that slow down the R the R rate. So so yeah, I think we do understand exponential growth, and we also sort of understand the importance of kind of stopping it early because once it sort of gets out of control, then it's really difficult to uh, to deal with. Yeah, we're playing a bit of a game through September or this kind of this battle going on because we've got good grass growth going on that will outgrow the damage that the disease is causing. But what we also need to be aware of is that pathogen population continues to increase. And I, I regularly hear people describing this kind of period or this time frame or the damage as it's just under the surface or it's bubbling away. Those kind of descriptions tell me there's a lot of activity going on, but they've also got a decent amount of growth. And what they're doing is they're striking the balance between growth and damage during this period. And it's understanding then when to pull the trigger on that first application. And personally, I think there's a number of things that I would look at. I think we start with watching the weather. We've all got a number of apps on our phone. And what we're looking for is periods of prolonged leaf wetness. And we're also looking at temperatures kind of in the 16 to 6, that 6 to 16 range. So that's a kind of useful thing to start looking at on your phone. Um, Then I'd be looking at your historic timings of application. So I'd run through, I'd make the effort just to run through your fungicide application record sheets from the previous years and just see when you've started things off. It's a really useful exercise to go through the weather data from previous years and your spray records and just review when you started and what periods and how effective it was. It's a good way to kind of start dialing in your ITM program. Yeah, my eyes have really been opened 
just by looking at the weather data, you know, I think just by doing these podcasts, Glenn, I think we're both a lot more tuned in to how the conditions can vary and the need to, you know, keep a close eye on what's coming in the future, but also to, to, to sort of reference back. Yeah, I think, I think I'd encourage everybody to do it. Just take the time to actually look at last September's weathered records for their site. Um, because... You know, you and I, we, we can't remember what it did last week without going back and looking at the records, and it often surprises us. So we're probably looking back with either rose-tinted spectacles or kind of being a bit harder than we need to. So go and have a look at that. And the other thing you can do is go onto the Greencast website and look at the historic disease records that are on there or the kind of prediction tools and look for historic notes on when things kick off. Take the time to review a few years back historically on your site and just have a look to see when that pressure starts. It's an interesting model and it's pretty simple. It's really driven around temperatures. And when are you in that optimum temperature range? Now, I've seen a few papers looking at this, but the modeling Greencast is even simpler than most of the models I've seen. It takes a mean temperature for the day, it couples that up with leaf moisture, and it decides if the temperature is in the optimum range. Now, all the Greencast's model is doing is it's really pairing up your pressure to what it feels is whether that's the optimum pressure or temperature for microdokian patch. And if you have a mean temperature of between four and seven, then it allocates the maximum score that model can allocate. Now it's doing that not because four to seven is the optimum range for microdokium to develop, but it's recognizing it's a strong period for it to develop with very little growth going on for recovery. Now it will continue to allocate these scores either side between zero and four, depending on the temperature for that day. Now, we know temperature isn't the only driver for this, so it's not a perfect model. But I've also looked at enough models and research papers to understand that this isn't perfect. But it's really, really good to kind of gauge when is a good time to think about starting. The pathogen will keep developing all the way up to 20 degrees. So there's not a clear-cut answer here, but it's a really nice balance. And what the model is working out is those optimum temperatures, balancing that against good grass growth to combat the disease. Tricky balance to strike, but it does a pretty good job of it for you to review your historic pressure. So go take a look at that. I think it really does help. Um, but we've mentioned it before, haven't we? We do have to build in our own influencing factors. It can't be taken in isolation. If you're getting a sort of moderate prediction bay of disease risk on um, on the green cast, but you've just applied a, a whole load of top dressing, for instance, or you're a sort of very shaded site, then you would sort of ramp up that sort of disease risk. By the same token, if you're a sort of really open site with quite tolerant grass types, you maybe would sort of factor it down a little bit. But yeah, it is, it is a really good starting point. But yeah, you, need, you do need to sort of build it into your understanding of your own site. Another thing you could do is try putting a core in a bag, which is a great way to understand where a disease is in its life cycle. Uh, take a plug from an indicator green, put it in a sealed bag with some moisture in there, and put it in a nice warm environment. Have a look the next day and see if there's any mycelium on the turf, which is that white fluffy like substance you'll see on the surface. Now, if you do see some, that disease was primed and ready to go. 
if there's not there and it takes a few days for anything to appear, you can be pretty confident that you are in control and you can wait a little longer. I suppose the key is that we're using various methods and resources to help guide that fungicide application um, because ultimately we need to be in front of the game. Yes, Henry, or go old school and just look out for that indicator green. It's probably still the most used method. Understand where you're most likely to see it first. Wait till you see it in that corner of the green. For me, at my last golf course, it was the lower end of the putting green. And when you see it there, assuming the weather looks like microdokian patch for the seeable future, then apply your fungicide then. But the thing is for me, have a trigger point, write it down, decide when you're going to apply and then commit to it. Yeah, yeah, use all all valid methods of gauging risk to help time the application properly. Okay, so that's how we sort of think about actually making an application. But what about the sequencing of, of fungicides? You know, they're not all the same, and um, we do need to consider rotations and multiple applications through the autumn. How do we go about that? Well, we plan it out, Henry. Um, I like to start at Christmas and work backwards. After all, if we can, we all want to give ourselves a nice break over that Christmas period where we don't have to worry about things. And I find it a useful place to start. We then need to think about the gaps between applications. A bit like Primo, this one, we shouldn't be looking at calendar months. Products don't break down like that. The warmer it is, the shorter the period they'll last. Now, it's not quite GDD here. It's more complex than that. We're dealing with multiple active ingredients and they all work differently. But if you wanted to try growth degree days, then I would try using 170 growth degree days at a base temperature of zero. Now, what that does is it gives you about two weeks in the September period, stretching out to about four weeks in December, roughly, because we know it's different across the whole country and we know each year can throw very different weather at us. Yeah, but um, I suppose the point is, is that sort of the deeper into autumn we go, well, the, the, the longer we'll get out of our fungicides. Indeed. I, I had a quick look at that um, 170 growth degree days base temperature zero figure before we did this, Henry. And you up there will get around 25 days compared to our 19 towards the end of September. But mm. of course, you're likely to be under higher pressure. Um, so... I don't know how useful it is, but it's just a useful, it's another useful piece of data to have in our head. It's far from a perfect simple. Mm. Now, from a timing and sequencing point of view, if you work that back from that kind of Christmas period, it can work out a lot of fungicides. As the earlier you start, the more of those kind of two weaker applications you have to make, the more of those you have to squeeze in. And once you get down to two week intervals, the number of fungicides you put out soon mounts up. So some areas of the country that are in those more difficult climates with higher leaf moisture, um, they're going to have to start early. You know, west coast of Ireland is an example. They get some real pressure over there. Now, I'm not saying they need to apply every two weeks during this period. What I'm saying is that's how long the timescale that they'll actually have fungicide cover for. So if they come out of these conditions and at the end of that, so if they come out of this kind of two-week period of cover, if they come out and the conditions are conducive to more disease, then consider getting another fungicide on. But if you come through that period of protection and the weather has broken in your favour, then you can back off. But you back off knowing that you don't have any fungicide cover. 
Okay, so this is important, isn't it? So what you're saying is, it's highly likely, even if we're applying fungicide, fungicides on a regular basis, it's highly likely we're going to have gaps during that period when we, when we don't have fungicide cover. That's right. And in mild periods, a couple of weeks fungicide cover is realistic, which is enough to get that disease under control and kind of knock it on the head and zero that population out. But you have to be aware after that period, the pressure will start building again. Now, depending on the conditions, the speed that it builds could be slow or it could be quick. And this is where our sort of fully integrated approach comes in, doesn't it? Because if if we've got sort of low or moderate pressure when that sort of gap period starts, if we're thinking about it, or when the fungicide runs out, then our supporting ITM approach of you know plant nutrition, leaf moisture management, possibly the use of iron, etc., might well do nicely at slowing down any sort of redevelopment, if you like. But if the disease pressure is high at that time, as you just mentioned, then you're probably asking too much of those non-fungicidal methods to hold thing in check for, for long, really. And so you just need to, again, be alive that there's a gap going on and that there might be some things that you can do depending on the level of risk to sort of to bridge that gap. But it might be that um, you need to go again with the fungicide depending on the pressure. Yeah, that's right. If pressure is high, then you're back to those fungicides, you know, to zero it out. It's not a fungicide failure. It's just that those conditions can override during the later period. Um, and that's why we've really got to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on. And that's why your situation is very different to mine. There is no template solution here, which is why we're doing what we're doing now is forward looking approach and this Agile ability to adapt is the key to success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on, we do know from our experience and also from all the trial work that the, the fungicide technologies of the fungicide technologies are really effective, but they aren't idiot proof, are they, Glenn? You still have to apply them properly and correctly, I suppose. So, how do we apply our fungicides? during this period to get the very best results because it does make a real difference and this could be the difference between a successful autumn and winter and a, and a failure so all of the products i'm talking about in this period this september time need to go onto the leaf and i kind of think of that very simply we want 350 to 400 liters of hectare of water red nozzles the syngenta xc nozzles are really good for excellent coverage and keep that pressure between two and three bar to ensure good coverage and no drift. We don't want to lose any of this product. It's not good for delivering the right product to the right place, and it's not good stewardship. And make sure those booms are floating really nicely over the surface to ensure good coverage. You know, because with this disease, especially if the if the the, the pressure is so high, uh, we do need to uh, get everything right. You know, be fully integrated. We do need to take a belt and braces approach because our sort of um, the non 
fungicidal elements of our ITM program. They only help to slow down the rate of development of disease, which is really important, of course, but it's the fungicides that actually kill it or or zero it out, you, you know, to sort of almost like allow us to start afresh. So it's really important that we get the best out of those fungicides, um, you know, if we're going to sort of tiptoe our way through this period. Um, so there we go, the microdochian patch disease. I mean, no doubt we'll be talking about this in October, November and de- December, but September is definitely the time when we need to be fully on our game. If we're to stand a chance against microdochian patch disease, we need to be fully integrated and essentially we just need to get everything right. Thank you, Henry. So we're staying ahead of the game, making sure we know when we're likely to go into a pressure Um, Getting ahead of that pressure, we're looking to use systemic, maybe some contact fungicide technology, depending on the climatic conditions. Taking our time to get that sprayer set up properly. If we can wait and hold it out, then do so. But have a trigger point in mind and don't be afraid to pull the trigger when we get there. We can't win the microdochium patch battle in September, but we can certainly lose it. Absolutely. Sounds like a good plan to me, Glenn. All right, Glenn, moving on. We spoke at quite some length last month about the uh, very early phases of the crane fly stroke leather jacket life cycle. As time moves on, what might we be thinking about in September? Well, it's highly likely, Henry, that this is the month we will begin to see crane flies emerging. The data from 2019 and 2020 submitted into Pest Tracker shows emergence starting around the beginning of September and peaking around the end of September. So we want to be monitoring this as closely as possible. So what actually should we we be looking out for? Well, we're looking for the casings sticking out of greens in the morning where they may have hatched overnight. They're a kind of grey, black, papery, leather jacket sized sheath that just sits out on the surface and it's easily removed by mowers. So you need to make sure your team is really looking for these things as once they've run a mower over them, all evidence of the emergence disappears. Um, A lot of their flight takes place overnight, so early morning and late evening monitoring is important. It's worth taking a walk through the wild grasses during this period, as that's where they will sit during the day until they are disturbed. Mm, Absolutely. So last month you spoke about maybe using lights to pull the crane flies away from the greens when they might be on the wing. Is now the right time to be experimenting with that? Yes, it's a strategy that's worth trying, and I'm not sure how effective it will be because I've never tried it before. But for the small amount of outlay into this cultural method, to my mind, it's got to be worth a go. Yeah, okay. So remind me, what are you recommending as a potential trial? Well, I would go and try and find some solar paneled lights that switch on as it gets dark and rig them up in the areas of the rough to try and pull the insects away from your critical areas such as greens. Now, I guess I got the idea from seeing what happens when you leave the bathroom lights on and the windows open and crane fly just seem to be strongly attracted to those lights. And I wonder if this kind of strategy could help pull them away from critical areas on the golf course. There's no science, there's no data, and we would find out quite quickly next year if it works, because if we did pull crane fly into those areas, we would probably see 
more damage around where the light's been situated. Yeah, I think it's worth a try for the outlay. And, um, you know, maybe people should get in touch if they're um, experimenting or maybe thinking about setting up a trial in a way that can be properly evaluated. Anyway, so look, we are keeping a very close eye out for crane fly activity in September, uh, monitoring them and trying to get a sense of that peak flight, which is the term that we use to help us with our treatment timing. Yes, please. And logging those sightings on Pest Tracker 2, you know, both 2019 and 2020, the main hatches started around the second week of September and continued around until around that first or second week of October. Now, that's really our trigger for when we start things happening with our programs. Now, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about, Henry, are a culmination of what I've seen and heard and what I believe to be best practice. They are not all yet proven. No, fair enough, though. Um, we certainly need to see more investment in research in this area, don't we, in terms of the sort of effectiveness of alternative uh, stroke cultural practices but seeing as you spent a lot of time in this area in the last couple of years i think we would all appreciate your latest recommendations for let's call it a wider scale leather jacket uh, integrated management strategy because it is clearly a massive issue for people yeah it really is so if at all possible i would have all of my intensive aeration completed before this hatch period not because i believe the holes make it easier for them to lay eggs after all the oviposta or the crane fly egg laying bum has evolved over millions of years to enable the insect to lay eggs in a lot more challenging conditions than a golf green but because at this time of year golf green recovery from that renovation will be far quicker if we can get it done beforehand. We'll get far better growing conditions. And what we then get is we've also got, this is the kind of least period of leather jacket feeding pressure. So if you listen to last month's podcast, we were talking about August being a great time to renovate. And it's for those reasons, we can get those greens fully recovered. So for me, try and get greens fully recovered. We get nice dry periods in August to get the best chance of filling aeration holes. And I believe that starts us in the best position possible to maximise the impact of any chemical or biological control we may choose to use a little bit down the line. Now, once we're confident that the insects have laid their eggs, then we need to look around a month later for optimum timing of a celebrant. We did some really nice user trials last year, and um, particularly on golf greens, and that was showing around a month later after flight was very, very positive. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we, you, you have learned a lot in recent years, haven't you? And um yeah, you know, we continue to sort of do more and more. I know you've got plans for this autumn as well. Yeah, we, we did a user trial. That user trial I mentioned at nine different golf clubs on their greens to try and establish best practice out in the field. We, we looked at timings to assess if we could improve the efficacy of the product by applying at different times. We looked at applying large areas around the greens to see if we could reduce migration of the insect. And we also looked at returning clippings to ensure as much of the product was returned 
return to where we wanted it as we could possibly achieve. What was interesting for me, Henry, was the clippings and the boundary sprays didn't give any clear benefits. Although we must note that in each situation, it will be different. And in some environments, boundary sprays will give a clear benefit. But on these nine user trials, that wasn't consistently approved. Now, in no situation did returning clippings or adding boundaries make things worse, but they didn't add much value either. Now, we did note much cleaner approaches and surrounds when we applied to those boundaries. So it was all much cleaner around, but what we we're assessing in this trial was the putting surface. And the study did show some very positive test results on the timings that we put in place as well, though. So out of the nine golf courses we did, three of them reported no damage at all, three of them reported some significant damage, and three of them reported slight damage once we got into the spring. So all in all, considering these were golf courses that had previous history of struggling to get the best out of the product, it was really good news. So in all of that, I went into the six golf courses that reported any damage and I assessed a total of 108 greens. Across those 108 greens, um, we saw a clear indication that golf greens applied one month after the peak flight gave us better results than applying at peak flight. Now, this is great news because it starts to indicate optimum timings to apply this product for what is proving to be a very tricky challenge. So that kind of all sums up really and shows why it's so important to start monitoring and diarising our application a month on from when we see the peak flight. Now, be careful to ensure your application goes down before the end of the emergency authorization, which we have just had approved, as we mentioned earlier. And there's some great news here because the emergency authorization this year runs through to the 29th of November. So it gives us some more room to get those applications in after peak flight. Yeah, that should really fit the bill for us, Glenn. It's a lot. It's a, it's a month later than previously, and it should really help us try and optimise those results. Yeah, and I'll be doing some trial work this winter to investigate later applications. As we know, as the insects get older and more mature, the impact of this product reduces uh, because they are much more capable of outliving the challenge it presents to them. And there will be a sweet spot for when it's at its most effective. But for now, our advice is to apply four weeks after peak flight. Okay, very good and really helpful. So for the application of a Celeprim, we're probably not looking at September, are we? It's probably going to be more like October or November, but it's certainly something that we need to think about now and, you know, certainly have our eyes open. Yeah, I think uh, we traditionally associated crane fly flights with August and it's the last two years that we've been gathering data. We've seen that it's much later. So we're assuming those last two years are normal. And that's why it's so critical to be doing this monitoring and keeping an eye on what is going on. But as we move forward into the future, this September period is going to be critical. And this is when we can start the battle to reduce the population of leather jackets before it starts. So there's a few things we want to think about here. We want to think about how we can pull them away from critical areas such as putting surfaces. We want to utilise any opportunity to dry down the surface of the green to reduce the number of eggs that can successfully hatch because they won't hatch particularly well when they are desiccated. They need moisture. Now, I appreciate that strategy is a tricky one because we've already identified how difficult or how much moisture we can get during the kind of September and October period, and we are trying to manage a putting surface. 
We also need to or want to ensure that we've completed as much of the intensive renovation as possible prior to applying the chemical because we want to make sure we have it throughout that soil profile. And we want to ensure we have backfilled as many of those holes as possible. So we avoid these kind of pockets or channels in the root zone where we tend to see them thrive during the winter. And of course, log any sightings on Pest Tracker. Let's keep gathering that data. Yeah, it sounds like a really good, comprehensive, properly, fully integrated um, plan of action, Glenn. Lots of different things. Uh, to think about and to be doing. Um, would this be a good time to mention the trial that we spoke about last month? Do you want to remind us about that again, Glenn? Yes, as, as far as I can tell, there is very little data to support any of my hypothesis around aeration and leather jackets. But I am convinced that large aeration holes are not backfilled provide a perfect environment for the leather jacket to develop in over the winter. It provides it with an easy route from warm soil temperatures at depth up to leaf tissue at the surface in a way that wouldn't normally be available if the holes weren't there. Recovery of these holes becomes very difficult then when you have a leather jacket feeding on them on a daily basis. Okay, so the idea is that we want to try to avoid providing them with an easy route to the surface if we can help it. Um, to stop them sort of feeding so easily. Uh, and we want trial sites to investigate whether the timing of aeration um, makes actually does make a difference. Yeah, and of course, we all know aeration holes are a lovely place to roots to develop as well. And after all, that's why we're doing aeration. But a leather jacket likes nothing more than to feed on those roots, does it? Yeah, when you put it like that, Glenn, it sounds like we... Might, if we're not careful, we might be in danger of creating a perfect environment for the leather jackets to exploit. Uh, if we're not careful, you know, we might unwittingly be making matters worse by, you know, thinking that we're doing the right thing. Well, I guess that's the case, really, isn't it? And to leather jacket, a leather jacket's needs are pretty similar to a turf grass's needs. They, they like decompacted soils, they like healthy roots, they like grass to feed on, and they like some decent soil temperatures. And they both like aeration holes, mm. particularly when they're left open to provide all of that. Yeah, and so sort of timing and 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 sort of effectiveness of top dressing sort of, you know, must be sort of things that we need to um, to look into. So so you've got a trial in mind. What do you want people to do? Well, I'm asking people to aerate one third of their putting green before Christmas and then do nothing afterwards. I'm asking them to aerate one third of their putting green as they would normally and continue that on after Christmas, and then one third of their putting green leave completely alone after their August renovation. Um, and then what we'll ask you to do is assess that in the spring and assess the scale of the damage. And we'll see which third is the easiest to present a putting surface on. And if we can get enough people to engage with this and get lucky enough or unlucky, depending on your perspective, to see some leather jacket activity, we may be able to pull enough data together to support this hypothesis one way or another, which will put us in a very strong position for the following season. Yeah, it'd be nice to get everyone involved, wouldn't it? You know, citizen science, as they call it, is very best. And, of course, there's no better trial site than a golf course. You know, and if we can get enough people to do this, then hopefully we can, it might help, you know, even in meaningful ways shape our 
um, future integrated pest management strategies and, you know, to ultimately to try and make them more effective. So, look, it's not a big commitment or anything too radical. So I would encourage people to get involved if they can. Yeah, I, I think that's it for September. Pull oh. them away from critical areas. Utilize opportunity to dry down the surface if it is there. Complete as much intensive renovation prior to the emergence as possible. Backfill those holes if you can. Log it on Pest Tracker and commit your putting green to the Leather Jacket Citizen Science Trial. Yeah, great. Um, there's sort of just one thing, and I know it's on the longer horizon, but we like with something like this, we do need to look forward. What do you think October is going to look like? Let's look beyond September and think that little bit further ahead. Well, I think in the next podcast, we're going to be talking about a celebrant applications and really dialing in that timing on that. Hopefully, we'll have a bit of a firmer idea on when they're going to fly this year. Um, we might talk a bit about nematodes and where they can structure in and how that all can all partner together. Um, we'll be thinking about how large an area to treat as well. You know, that's going to take, make up part of our discussions next month, Henry. Mm. After all, we're dealing with an insect that is very capable of traveling high distances when it wants or needs to, um, both up and down that soil profile as well as across the surface. So that's going to be an important part of October's conversation. October is going to be our opportunity to make the biggest dent in that population. October and November is critical. And in the future, I think that's going to be our most important month for reducing the populations of this pest, making our job much easier in the spring. Yeah, absolutely. We really are sort of in the thick of things in September, October, November, and we we do need to be on our game, don't we? All right. Well, very good, Glenn. And I think and thanks for that. That was really good. Um, but that's it, isn't it, for 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 this month's on the horizon? And once again, Glenn, we seem to have covered. A lot of ground, um, which I hope everyone will find useful. And we've already had our sort of preliminary discussions about next month. It's going to be a good one, I think. You know, there's plenty going on during October for us to get our teeth into. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Yeah, I've enjoyed this month too, Henry. It's felt like a month where the emphasis has changed. And I think October will see that switch up again. It's been a most enjoyable experience. It's goodbye from me. We should also mention that this episode has been accredited with Basis CPD points. So please log into your Basis account and register the following event code. And that's CP forward slash 114 713 forward slash 2122 forward slash K.